Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. We'll be right back to today's show. But before we do, I want to let you know that you can get a free copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma, when you leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, either on desktop or on your phone. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, look up Think Unbroken, click follow in the top right, and then go and leave a review at the bottom. And when you leave that review, screenshot it and send it over to book.thinkunbroken.com where you can upload your contact and mailing information, and we will send you a free copy of this award-winning, best-selling book, absolutely free, including shipping. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to upload your screenshot review from Apple Podcasts for the Think Unbroken podcast. And until next time, my friend, be unbroken. I'll see you. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show. But I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me 
and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. Hey, what's up, Unbroken Nation? Hope that you're doing well wherever you are in the world today. Very excited to be back with you with another episode. My friend, Jake Shannon. In person, no less. Jake, brother, what's going on? How are Dude, you Dude, I am the first person in person. You are the first person in person. Dude, I am. I, <laughs> I know I'm probably blowing this out of proportion, but I'm really stoked. This is, uh, this is cool. So. Dude, well, I'm super excited to have you here because, you know, we've connected first and foremost through this 10X community, which I'm sure we'll get into that as we go. Sure. Um, but... We have so many commonalities, so many similarities in our journey. And I thought to myself, what a better person to bring on the show. And so for those who do not know you, tell us a little bit about you and how you got to where you are today. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I do want to get this out of the way. Thank you so much. Oh, of course. For having me on. Uh, this is really, <laughs> this is super cool, man. I love this setup that you got. Uh so for me, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 49 in like a month and I'm in a really kind of great spot in my life. Uh, I have, you know, three great kids. I have a wonderful wife. We're having a 16th anniversary tomorrow. So Amazing. super stoked. Uh, you know, my parents are still alive and, you know, I'm friendly with them and stuff. And so it's really a fantastic time of my life right now. Uh, but the thing that I love about what you're doing is that people need to realize that <laughs> nothing lasts forever. Bad times don't last forever, but good times don't last forever either. And it's what do you do with those times? I think it's really important for people to take charge of that instead of it's very easy in our culture to get sucked into kind of a pity party when challenges arrives or at least is it has been for me in the past um but you know all of anything that i consider success in my life i think has come from me sure maybe in the initial depending on the severity of the shock um if it's super epic yeah maybe i have a little a week or two where i'm just like trying to get my bearings and get back uh, at it, but it's super important to just focus on where you want to go and not what you fear or what has hurt you. It's all mental. It yeah. really, I mean, we live in a physical world, but so much of it is mental. So, you know, for me, I, um, I really like this podcast and, and what you're doing because it's so much of it is about overcoming. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I had a bunch of crazy health uh, issues that came up. My, my parents, great parents, but you know, I don't think that they were super duper, you know, this pre-internet, they're busy with their lives. They didn't know they weren't invested in health and stuff. They were just like average people. And I going to be honest with you, I'm very skeptical of the medical industry now because of my experiences as a child. I think I was, um, the victim of what's known as iatrogenic harm or medical error. Um, I had an appendectomy when I was probably nine or 10 that was botched. 
and I ended up having gangrene poisoning, nearly, oh, nearly dying. And uh, they did emergency surgery. I always remember this. I, they did emergency surgery on the 4th of July. They had to, like, pull the doctors off of their picnics and stuff. It was that much of an emergency. And I remember them rolling me. It was at St. Anthony's, which used to overlook Sloan's Lake here, but they destroyed it moved it. But I was in this St. Anthony's. I can remember seeing the fireworks going off while I wow. got the mask on, you know, with the anesthetic. So this <laughs> is, like, middle of the night. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Like, I mean, I was, it was... And it was because this doctor who did my appendectomy, he was in a small town, uh, Salida, which is right next to Buena Vista in Leadville up in Colorado, a small town, especially at that time. Uh, we're talking 1984 or something. And um, yeah, I got like gangrene poisoning, which is like something that should really be affecting people at like Little House on the Prairie times, <laughs> you know? And just as I got back from my health from that, my health back, uh, I got hammered about five years later with uh, a Hodgkin's lymphoma diagnosis when oh. I was about 15. And then, you know, I had to go through all the chemotherapy and radiation and, and it just destroyed me, man. I mean, I had always been a very active kid, very physical, but these just kept setting me back. And, you know, the thing, I think one of the things that really got me through a lot of these things and has helped me through life. I mean, you, you know, me through this personal development space, but you also know me because of the personal development space of my work in like wrestling and grappling and martial arts and things like that. And that was a huge, I think there's something to be said for heroes, you know, having idols or somebody that you're trying to be like when you're not there, when you're broken, you know, when you're having a really hard time. Yeah. Um, somebody to inspire you. And, um, I remember the first inspiration was the karate kid movie. <laughs> I had already been doing wrestling, but I never thought I had started peewee wrestling in like 1979. So, I mean, I've been on the mats for like 40 years or something. I mean, it's like ridiculous, right? But I never thought of it as a martial art. I just thought it was like something to do. And then Karate Kid came out, and I was like, oh, to hell with this wrestling stuff. I'm going to go do this McDojo karate stuff. And uh, I got a black belt, but then right when I got my black belts, when I got the cancer. So I, it was wow. right, it was between the two illnesses, I got really invested into martial arts. And you were in your teens? Yeah, I was, you know, like early teens. You know, uh, I think I started when I was like 12 and got my black belt by 15, and then boom, just got Dude, the that, diagnosis. That's got to be such a mind fuck, right? Because... This is the age where I'm sure you're just watching people healthy and having fun and enjoying life. And I was a sick kid too. I had fucking crippling migraines. I had five or six surgeries on my finger. I was in and out of doctors having asthma attacks. I coded one time. And I just remember being like, why the fuck can I not be healthy? Yeah. And then, you know, I started having all these like kind of, I really got into philosophy, especially when I uh, got the cancer because I just had kind of... I think a lot of times when you're not confronted with serious trauma, you don't necessarily lead an examined life. You just kind of take a lot for granted. Mm. And it's when those things are taken away from you, you start like, why would God do this to me? Or, you know, like those kind of thoughts. And then you start being like, well, what if there really isn't a God in the way that I've been taught in Catholic school? <laughs> you know, what if, what if there's a different way of looking at this and I shouldn't be a victim? I shouldn't feel persecuted. I shouldn't feel maybe these are challenges that I need to overcome. You know, maybe this is the karma of my life that, you know, I could play this out a million times and be mad or blame somebody, but it doesn't matter. 
I, these are challenges that I personally had to overcome no matter what and, scenario. And you realize like as, as a kid going through that, you were able to make meaning of that? You know, on a philosophical level, I was. Um, so I, I was also an only child, right? And that I think is a interesting psychological space because uh, in one regard, I, I mostly dealt with adults. Mm. So I've always been very savvy with regards to communicating at an adult level. But I didn't have any siblings. I didn't have to work out like sharing or, <laughs> you know, these like basic simple concepts, right? And it was difficult for me when I reached adulthood. And I never was able to really bond with people in my age group. And then, you know, when I'm 15 and, you know, I was, like I said, I was doing all this martial arts and I was working out and I, you know, I, I'm not proud of it, but I'm going to say, you know, I was kind of a bully, honestly, at that time of my life. And then all of a sudden in the course of a summer, I go through radi radiation and chemotherapy. I'm six foot one. I grew real tall by the time I was 15. I'm six foot one, probably about 165 pounds. And by the end of summer, uh, when I go back to school, I'm 117 pounds. Wow. And all of a sudden now I'm on the other side of the bully equation. And it was like, it was actually very difficult for me. Uh, that was difficult because, you know, you're 15, you're going through puberty. You're like trying to get girls. And dude, I looked like a freaking Auschwitz victim, dude. No chick, you know, it's all pity. Like at that point, you know what I mean? Sure. And, and you I can't, can't imagine you had self-esteem or confidence then either. <laughs> oh, it's rough, dude. It was really rough, but you know, <clears throat> I, I, the concept of, of rock bottom, I think, is different for everybody. And for me, I remember um, I had been like one of those just say no kids, you know, like super until I got cancer. And then I was like, fuck it. Started mm. drinking, started smoking weed, started dropping acid. I was like, fuck it. Like the fucking opposite thing you should be doing when you have cancer. Probably, probably. But, you know, the thing I will say about this that was interesting now with hindsight um, is how you know, the efficacy of psychedelics in dealing with trauma that they're finding now. And I just ended up not doing meth or heroin, thank God. And I ended up just being mostly into like weed, mushrooms, and acid. And I did a lot. I did like a lot my freshman year. When I went to college, got away, got to freedom, some independence. And I was like doing a lot of acid. And it, I think it did two things. I think it did help me process a lot of the trauma I had as a kid and kind of get over it. Um, and then it also helped me hit that rock bottom where I just was disgusted with myself. I just, one day I can remember it was spring break of freshman year. And uh, because I had always been socially awkward as a kid, I didn't really have any friends that I bonded with. My roommates were really cool and they liked me and they took me under my, under their wing, which was a crucial port, uh, part of my life as well. Uh, these roommates I ended up lucking out having in college but they, um, I was alone. Everybody else went partying on spring break and I'm in the dorms like a loser. And I'm like in the worst shape of my life. I, could, I just looked at myself in the mirror and I just was disgusted because I'd just been smoking weed, drinking, not doing anything. And just something happened and I just got down on the floor, started trying to do push-ups, and I couldn't even do 10 push-ups. Yeah. You know, and I remember through karate, I mean, I was banging out like a hundred push-ups, no problem, you know. Every day. Yeah, because you're just getting acclimated to it. And um, that was a real wake-up call, man. And I was like, okay, I'm cold turkeying all this stuff. Uh, enough of this. I just, 
I was disgusted. And from that moment on, I, I had a confluence of events that happened in that like freshman, sophomore year that ended up changing my life. One was this rock bottom, this just being disgusted. I do think that psychedelics did help me process the trauma and get beyond it. Uh, but it also, I had my priorities all messed up. I was a dumb hippie, like not really, nothing bad about hippies, but just saying like my priorities weren't yeah. like on my health or development or growth or wealth or anything like that, you know? So um, I ended up having these roommates and they were all skateboarding enthusiasts, like nerds. They were like into it. And one of them in particular, Before was skateboarding Michael. was cool. Dude, skateboarding was actually really cool. Like karate was not cool. Like <laughs> skateboarding was actually cool. Like that could get you girls and stuff back then. But uh, one of my roommates, his name was Michael, Michael Burnett, totally obsessed with skateboarding. Like it was kind of annoying at the time. Like everything had to do with skateboarding. Not It was all skateboarding. And he was my roommate and he was a great guy, super nice guy. But I was not a skateboarder. And so being just totally bombarded. But I sat back. And I started looking at what was happening with him and his obsession and it just single-minded focus on this one subject was transforming him into a leader. And he was getting like skate parks built. He was responsible for getting the first skate park built in Boulder. He's like a 20 year old kid just because he wants a skate park (laughs) because he's obsessed. Mm. Right. And so I start looking at this and this is where I'm at this rock bottom period. And they kind of took me under their wing. Now, that obsession has paid off for Michael, by the way. He runs Thrasher Magazine now. He's like the guy in charge of all of Thrasher, which is, to me, massively successful, right? Yeah, like it's very successful. It's huge. Like, Thrasher is part of the iconography of, like, America at this point. Truly. It's um, on T-shirts at Hot Topic. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, right? And he runs that magazine. He's the editor-in-chief. But um, uh, I started looking at that obsession, and I was like, I just can't get into the skate thing. I picked it up. I started skating. I, I couldn't help it because it was so infectious and everybody around. Uh, I started snowboarding and whatnot, but it still wasn't my passion. And I started going over an inventory of things that I had, and it went back to wrestling and martial arts and karate. And almost within a year, two big events swirled around that for me. One was the release of... Uh, I think it's called Dragon, the Bruce Lee story with Jason Scott Lee. Mm-hmm. Saw that, I was like, oh my God, this is so awesome. Totally motivated me. And then I went to UFC 2, which was held here in Denver. And those two things, I was like, this is it. This is, my, I'm, I'm totally obsessed with this. This is going to be easy. Well, it wasn't easy, but, but because you're obsessed, it makes it that much easier to do pretty crazy things. Yeah. And, and I think obsession, and, and that's a word that I think catches people off guard because I think especially in this country, people hear the word obsession and they're like, oh, well, if you're obsessed with something, you don't care about anything else and you don't care about your family, or your health or your business, or it's like that one thing, right? And I, I've always thought to myself, well, if you're not obsessed with something, then you're not going to really understand it. You're not going to be able to build around it, you know? And just like you as a kid, I grew up wrestling. I went to wrestling camps, you know, but I actually wasn't obsessed with it. I loved it. I really enjoyed it. To this day, I really love it. But, you know, there was something really defeating about, like, getting up at 4.30 in the morning <laughs> to wrong, run, dude. right? And and then, you know, once you get to a certain level, it's like these other kids were so freaking good. I was just like, I don't love it this much. I'm out. But I've I found other things in my life that I've been obsessed with. This podcast, for instance, in, 
uh, for instance, um, having conversations like this, learning, growing, being in environments where I can become a better version of myself. Like I'm obsessed with personal development, right? And I, I see it play out again and again and again that when I bring these things into my life, like something incredible happens. So now you're in this position, you're, you're, and, and I will say this, I probably am obsessed with UFC and MMA, right? Because it's just, I remember seeing it for a, as a kid for the first time on like NBC nightly news and McCain was on there talking about human cockfighting. And I was yeah, in the living yeah. room with my grandma. I'll never forget this. And she's like fucking chain smoking cigarettes. Cause when you used to smoke in the house with children, like psychos and, yeah. and I'm just watching this and enamored. And I don't think I've ever told you this. The, the first time I saw a UFC fight, I'd went to the family video on the corner of 30th and Georgetown in Indianapolis where I grew up. And this is back in the day. No bullshit. They had the beaded curtains where all the adult <laughs> stuff was in it the was back. back there. Yeah. And, wow. and on the cover, it was UFC number three and it was okay. the octagon and you know, the, the big grayed out muscle guy. Yeah. And I walked in there and it's like porn, 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 <laughs> UFC. And I, and I, and I dude, I've got to be, 11, yeah. 10, 11, somewhere in that window. And I grab it. I go up to the front desk and the lady looks at me, dude, I'm like this tall. And, <laughs> and she, she goes, are you 18? And I just go, yeah. And she lets me rent UFC. And, and I must've watched that tape that weekend 10 times. And, and it's been something that I've loved ever since. So <laughs> detracting from that, cause I think we could talk about that all afternoon. What what started to transpire in your life? Because I know you had a lot of events, not only around that time, but into what's led you to where you are. So what started happening in your life? You're like, okay, here's this UFC, here's martial arts. I'm obsessed with it, wrestling, all this. It's starting to come together. It's starting to make sense in your head. And and now, like, I think people who know you, which I'm sure a few people listening do, they're like, oh, wow, you've been mentioned on Joe Rogan podcast and you created this mace thing and blah, blah, blah. But it all started somewhere. What was the beginning of this journey like when you actually got clarity about the life you wanted to have? Well, you know, it, the the obsession, I think, is the first... Well, I think the first part... It's funny. This is so perfect, uh, actually, because I'm in the process of writing another book. I've probably written over a dozen at this point. But right now I'm writing a book, and I'm going to... It's really talking about lessons from both wrestling and, and business and how what I've learned from both of those businesses. And... You know, I think the first step in in a journey like this is that dealing with reality as it is right now. And that is maybe rock bottom. <laughs> like when I was disgusted with myself. When I'm like, dude, this is not it. I, you know, like this is I'm not gonna live my life like this. And I've had a few of these moments, actually, and they're pivotal. They're they suck, but they're totally crucial in my opinion. And they're very personal and they're very spiritual, right? Cause it's just like grabs you by the lapels and paintbrushes you kind of experiences. It's not fun. So, you know, that was one of them. Uh, and I think that's absolutely crucial. I think the second thing is to find something you're obsessed about. So you're right. I think obsession, unless you're Calvin Klein, usually has a negative connotation in our culture. Um, I don't think that's true. I think it's like guns or like drugs or anything. It's how they're used. And it, that's an individualistic thing. So, like, I think there could be negative, unhealthy obsessions. And I think there could be completely healthy obsessions. Like, being healthy. Like, people who are very obsessed with being healthy. I can't really find much fault in that. 
you know, of course, you're right. If you define obsession as doing something and neglecting other important things, yeah, that's not good. But I don't think that's necessarily, for me personally, you know, and these, this is where definitions can be somewhat subjective. Sure, you can go look in the dictionary, but there is some wiggle room and in interpretation on things. So for me, <clears throat> obsession is no different than single-minded focus. It's just the word obsession has more emotional oomph, the more of the feel to it of what single-minded focus is. So I think you have to have that rock bottom moment or that get real, that man in the mirror type of moment. Then I think you have to have this like decision that resonates with you. Like, this is my thing. This is, I, and you know, I, it's hard to talk outside of myself. I work a lot in coaching with people and having them try to find these obsessions. <clears throat> and honestly, one of the tricks that I do is I say, go look at your credit card and your bank statement. And after you cross off all the necessities, like food and rent and all these things, what are you spending the most money on? Because that's my guess. That's what you're absolutely obsessed with. Mm, you know? That's a really good point. Right? Because that's just where, like what you love and what you respond to at a gut level. So um, for me, once I got that focus, on, I knew it had to do with grappling. I knew it started with martial arts, right? Because I was like, I'm not into skateboarding, right? Like you weren't into wrestling. Like, it's cool. I still like skateboarding culture. I still, you know, I, I have a skateboard in the trunk, right? But it's not what I'm obsessed with. When I found the obsession, that started me on the journey. Mm. And that journey then is constantly just sharpening your axe. You know, like starting, it's, a, it's like a sculpture, it starts out like this just giant blob of clay, but at least you have a blob of clay. And then you start whittling it down, and eventually you'll end up with a work of art if you stay on it focused long enough. And that's what happened with me. So I ended up um, going to UFC 2, totally changed my life. I was like, this is what I need to do. And so I became like stupid, like a cowboy. I'm like 22, full of testosterone and not a lot of experience. And so I just started doing challenge matches everywhere. And I started getting a little bit of a reputation, like locally. D define what that is for people. Now, no it wasn't idea. full on fights. They were grappling. It was basically like, let's wrestle until the other person gives up. Which was totally stupid because I didn't really have any training. <laughs> you know, I have a lot of injuries from those days uh, to this day. And, but I was like dead set, like this is it. And then I took... A calculated risk. I did everything I could in Colorado, which was like nothing because there was back in 94, this was so cutting edge and weird new. Like, yeah, it was in the porn section. Like it was taboo. Nobody wanted a piece of this. And here I am like picking fights. It was like fight club before the movie came over. It came out, you know, but I couldn't find anybody. So I ended up moving to California because that's where all the, the Gracie Jiu Jitsu people had immigrated in the United States at that time. A lot of them were down in Torrance with Hoyce and Horion, those were the guys who actually promoted and started the UFC. I didn't know that at the time, that they did it as a marketing vehicle to sell their Yeah, so you're about system. to go in the lion's den. Well, I mean, yeah. So and so I go to, um, to San Francisco because I did my research. I always try to research and work with the very best person that I possibly can. That's a way I shortcut. Tony Robbins was huge for me on that. I, during that rock bottom period, I remember... I was just like, dude, I'm such a fucking loser. Like, I just was hating my life. And I was, I had anxiety because I was like, how am I going to live? I don't know how to make money. I don't know how to do anything. I'm like 20 years old, 
public schools totally failed me. Like it's not prepared me for the real world. And I'm just freaking out. And I was up way late. And one of Tony Robbins infomercials came on. I can remember it was him and Fran Tarkington speaking at a poolside. And it was an eight cassette unlimited power cassette. This is like before even DVD a while ago. And man, I just listened to that. And one of the big lessons I took was like, why did you, hold on, hold on. Why did you order it? Because I, here's what I think happens so often to people. Here it is right in front of you. The thing that you know, you need, like something about it is calling to you. Why did you decide to order that? Because yeah. I mean, those things were like like one ninety nine back then. Like it was, it, wasn't it was cheap. an investment. It was a lot for me to invest. Yeah. I had no money, dude. especially at twenty years old with no money, dude. I was which working is the at reason Hagen-Dazs. why you should invest. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, but I mean, it just spoke to me, dude. I was like a loser, and Tony basically in that infomercial late at night, totally like at the bottom. He's like, dude, I can show you some tricks. You're the target market, dude. It was perfect, and I totally went and I, and. Because of that, I decided like, okay, there, you know, I got deep down the NLP rabbit hole for a while and ended up getting the hell out of there. Cause I just, there's a lot of it that I don't like. Yeah. Same. But that said, there's a lot that's actually super interesting and valuable. And the one that I, the thing that I really took out of there was modeling greatness. So I decided, okay, the lion of the Gracie family is what he's called is, is, uh, uh, Carly. Gracie was in San Francisco. I ended up having kind of a connection that might've got me a job at at working in film at a production company up North, uh, fantasy films. It's a company that was, it was Saul Zant's company. He helped produce Creedence Clearwater Revival. He produced, um, one flew of the cuckoo's nest. And, and so I had this connection to go work there as an intern. And, and then also Carly's in San Francisco. So I'm like, screw this. I'm done. I graduate. From college, I go right out there. Now, I graduated with an English degree. And in 1994, that was like the least, I mean, I could have got basket weaving. I could have, I should have done gender studies. Like, this was like the worst possible degree I could have got for generating any, any income in 1994, 95. Like, it just was stupid. I was lazy is what it was. And mm. I had fucked up. And I was like, shit, I need to do a major and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I just picked whatever was easy. Mm. Uh, that's the truth. I go to San Francisco, which was like the most expensive city in, in America at the time. And I was just decimated <laughs> because I took this massive risk. My parents aren't wealthy. They're blue collar. I move way the fuck away. So I have no support network. I'm not really that good with people yet. <laughs> so I'm like out in San Francisco alone, super expensive. All I can get are minimum wage jobs. I have to have three minimum wage jobs just to exist. And that's like wow. ghetto, like existence. It's not, I, I mean, it was like, I was poor, poor for years. And this is where I had actually another one of those like paintbrush moments where it was like, dude, you need to get your shit together. I remember I was working. You, I'm going to ask you a question first. Yeah. Do you think that you were working those minimum wage jobs because you believe that's all you were capable of getting? I just didn't have skills. I just mm. was a total clueless human being about how the world worked. Yeah. You know, and this is before the internet. You know, th- this is the the weird thing about being old enough to have grown up before the internet, but still be in my 20s when the internet really started coming on strong. Being able to get information 
was so much easier after the internet. Yeah, totally. I had no idea what to do, how to connect with people. If you weren't connected, you, it, it was like impossible. So, um, yeah, I mean, but, you know, I'd like to say some of that was mindset, but it was more information asymmetry. I just didn't have data to work off that was good data. So you just had to take a lot of risk. Mm. And that's what I did. And I remember I was out there, I was working three jobs. I had a job as a, and they're all minimum wage. I was working in a video store. I was working in a, uh, and again, I, I was only working in a video store because I was obsessed with Quentin Tarantino at the time. And that's what he did. I thought, okay, yeah, I'll be a famous movie director. Go work in a video store, which was a mistake, right? I think you have to go to film school. Too. Oh my God, it was ridiculous. <laughs> then I was working in a bookstore and I was a teller in a bank. And, oh no, and then I was also an usher at a movie theater. So I had four jobs. And literally, I mean, I, I was eating ramen and eggs like every meal. It was gross, dude. It was just was like not a way to live. Like for years, it was not good. But I was, I was satisfied. I was like living my little adventurous life for me. Skateboarding everywhere in San Francisco is fun, whatever, right? Had no responsibilities. I remember one day I was at lunch and I was at this bookstore and across the way was this Chinese food place. And this Chinese food place was my one treat I could give myself. And it was a $2 lunch special, okay? But that was like my splurge. That was my like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. Like it was sad, right? So I go and I, one day I go and I had a half hour for lunch in the stock room. I open up the Chinese food and I'm literally wolfing it down. And I get halfway through and I look down and it's literally full of like cockroach parts. Oh. And I'm like sitting there and this is the moment. I just was like, I'm really hungry. And I just picked out the cockroach parts, finished it. And then I was so disgusted with how I was living and what I was putting up with. I was like, this has got to change. I cannot be poor anymore, dude. This is stupid. And poor is stupid. I agree. It was bad. It was just dumb. And it was a choice at this point then. At that point for me, I felt I was old enough. I had enough awareness. I was like, I need to change what the fuck I'm doing here. I need to like spend my time on other stuff. And, and money is actually important, yeah. you know? And at that point... Did, did you believe up to that point money wasn't important? Because like for me growing up, being dirt poor, being homeless as a kid, money was always this thing where it was like, pray to God you have it. Just mm. just pray you can cover the bills. Be satisfied right. that you have what you have. And, and that played out for me for a couple of years. Luckily, because I was obsessed with money... At 20, I made my first $100,000, which That's is awesome. almost insane. That's like, awesome. Dude, I literally pulled up my W-2 two weeks ago from when I was 20 years old because I was like, am I making this up? Did, did this happen or am I like spinning <laughs> right, a right. fucking am I yarn here? It? Yeah. Exactly. And so I, I kind of lied a little bit because I cleared $95,600. You could round it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, at that point, it was like money was everything to me because all I had experienced was never having it. And so I think that's a fucking mindset shift. Like people have to have. So that's a, that's a massive rock bottom, dude. I would have went hungry. It was, it was gross, dude. I mean, I just, it was another one of those man in the mirror moments. And it's like what you said, like, you know, when I grew up, my parents were very blue collar and I was very much like a latchkey kid where I just was home alone and I'm, an only child. I mean, I had a very lonely childhood ex- existence and then a lot of illness too, where I couldn't even go to school. 
So I spent so much time alone that that was like just my normal. And as long as I just had some, some stuff to draw with and maybe a Nintendo, I was cool. Like, it's just, I just was like conditioned that way as a child. And that carried on all the way until I was probably about 25. I was okay with that until this moment. That moment, I was working at this bookstore. Now, this is before Amazon. So it was, the name of the book was, the bookstore was Laissez-Faire Books. And Laissez-Faire Books was the only, it was the biggest libertarian bookstore. And they did direct mail. So you'd get like a, a catalog in the mail every month. And then that's how they made their money, right? So I ended up hooking up at this bookstore. They were in San Francisco, downtown. And I'm working there and I'm in the book stacks because I'm in the shipping department. I work my way up pretty quick. I'm managing the shipping department. So I'm around all these like economics books, like hardcore, like Milton Friedman, F.A. Hayek, James Buchanan, all these Nobel laureates, um, uh, Gary Becker, all these high level thinkers that are economists, but also happen to be a libertarian. So they carry the stock. Anyway, I read, I'm constantly just immersed in this. And one day, we used to have author signings come in all the time. And one day, this guy comes in. His name's Joe Furig. He was a, he's passed away. Rest in peace. Huge mentor of mine. Changed my life. Came in, and he lived in San Francisco, and he was, a, uh, he was the, the dean of the economic school at Golden Gate University, which is the oldest private school in California. And it's a business-oriented school. And he and I just sit down and start bullshitting. And he's like, dude, you should be in grad school for, for economics. And I'm like, dude, I have a bachelor's in English, dude. No. He's like, no, you need to do it. And he convinced me to do it. And I went and I studied the GRE, studied, did good enough, got into grad school for a completely different subject than my undergraduate. And then when I got in it, I'm like, this is it? Dude, this isn't hard enough. I want the hardest subject. And I then switched majors into something called financial engineering, which is basically financial mathematics with computer programming. I'd never programmed, ever. And I did it. In 2002, it took me a couple of years because I had to finance it myself. I had to work at the same time. I got in, I think, in 98 and graduated in 2002. And, um, but that was... Because I decided money was important and then I got crazy obsessed about money <laughs> and I decided to study money the hardest I could, like mm. to get into the deepest, nastiest, hardest, most difficult guts of it that I could. And that was financial engineering. What do you think is the most, what do you think is the greatest misnomer about money that, that kind of changed the way that you think, operate, understand, use, experience money in your life. Because so many people, and, and I was guilty of this for a very long time, thinking of like, I just, money is, it's everything, but I'd be like, it's also not important. And that's like the greatest lie I used to tell myself because it is important and it does matter. Yeah, I, I, I think there's there's that attitude that just kind of permeates our culture. Either it's that where it's not important you know, there are thing, other things are more important and how dare you put money above these other things. That is definitely prevalent in the culture. Um, and also just this idea that it's flat out bad. Yeah, like, that's such like, a good point. Which is even worse to me. And I was in, I was actually, if this is, 
like kind of the common one and then there's the bad. I was actually halfway between both of those for a long time. And I was poor and I was suffering and I ended up eating cockroach parts, man. Like it was not good. Right? I don't mean to laugh, but I no, get it's it. it's the truth, man. It sucked. It's stupid. But that's how you learn, in my opinion, yeah. right? So I end up going to this grad school. Now, during this whole time, I am still like a, a masterless samurai going to all these different jujitsu grappling schools and trying to figure my way out. Now, partially because I think of the trauma of of uh, the self-esteem issues I had with women growing up and nothing against strippers. Like you, you're, you're all doing something wonderful, but like it's a difficult job to have a relationship with somebody uh, in that kind Dude, of situation. I did the same thing when I was 19 years old and I was in misery. We'll be right back to today's show, but first I need to ask you a question. Are you feeling stuck? Are you feeling like you don't have the support to go to the next level in your healing journey? Are you feeling like you wish you had a little bit more support from not only myself, but the Unbroken Nation? Well, my friend, I want to invite you to come and join our live weekly coaching sessions in Think Unbroken. All you have to do is go to keys, K-E-Y-S, keys.thinkunbroken.com to sign up and join us today with 100% money back, no questions asked, guaranteed and no contract or commitment every week for the next year. You can come and be a part of our live coaching sessions each Monday as we dive deep into not only answering your questions, but questions from the unbroken nation and help you take all of the information that you learn in the podcast, in the courses and other areas of this journey, bring them into your life and use it in a way that is practical, life-changing and transformative. So my friend, join us at keys.thinkunbroken.com and we will see you this Monday. But like, so I, I was dating, but I was dating this girl and she was absolutely upset. Okay. So I never really liked pro wrestling growing up. I just never got into it. I went to a couple shows and it was cool. Uh, I think I saw Ricky, the dragon steamboat, Ric Flair. They all came to Denver Coliseum. Like my dad took me to a couple pro wrestling, but I never got into it. Cause it just was like, dude, I just never bought into it. it was real. I'm just like, this is, what is this? I'm not into this. But she was into it. And this was right when like SmackDown started coming out, right? And it was like The Rock and Triple H and, and um, Stone Cold Steve Austin. It was like this new edge, this new branding, the this attitude new marketing. Era. The attitude era, right? And she was just all about it. just it. got real nerdy. <laughs> no, dude, it's super nerdy. So she's all into this. And I'm like, oh my God. And then to impress her, because I was not connected. This is still the early days of the internet, very early days of MMA and grappling in the United States. Like, considering where it is now, I just wasn't connected. And I wasn't getting bookings. I, what, nothing was happening with my passion, with my dream of being a grappler, right? It just wasn't really going. And this girl, because I was so into her, kind of opened my mind a little bit. And I, I've, I'm also a comedy nerd. Right. And so one of my biggest heroes is Andy Kaufman. Well, before the movies came out or anything like this, this is from when I worked at the video store and he had a couple fucking hilarious videos. One's called I'm from Hollywood and it's his own documentary about his journey in pro wrestling. And it was so fucking brilliant and so hilarious because he just got everybody so riled up. I was like, this is genius. Yeah. This is genius from a comedic he's, standpoint. He's the greatest villain in the history of wrestling. Oh God, dude, he was so good. So, this combination of me like nerding out over the comedy genius of, of Andy Kaufman and then trying to impress this stripper chick, I was like, okay, I'm going to try this pro wrestling thing. So I got juiced up. <laughs> I got up to like 225. 
Uh, I'm na- naturally probably around 195, 190. Um, uh, but I'm lanky. I don't carry weight naturally. So I got juiced up. Started going to this pro wrestling school. And I actually had modest success with it. I got picked up by the Vans Warp Tour. Toured with them when they had a, a pro wrestling group. So I spent the summer with the Vans Warp Tour in 2001. Uh, I got trained by uh, a, a guy in Mexico City, a very famous Japanese pro wrestler uh, named Ultimo Dragon. Went to a, a week-long training camp in Mexico at his dojo down in Mex- uh, on the outskirts of Mexico City. And um, then I ended up hooking up with this group in Hayward, California that was like a satellite group of Pro Wrestling NOAA. Pro Wrestling NOAA is a Japanese professional wrestling organization, probably top three depending on the year. Um, and they were like the satellite school. Well, I ended up, while I was in San Francisco, Hayward's very close. I was like, I'm going to go train with these guys. And it, it blew my mind. And I wasn't aware that in Japan, pro wrestling is way different than it is in the United States. In the United States, it's cartoonish. You know, it's just, there's no other way to describe it. It's it's a comic book. It's not real. It's and it doesn't even pretend to be real. You just pissed off all the wrestling fans. Okay, listen. <laughs> they 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 they're smart at, the, at they, this point. They, they know, know what's happening. Yeah, and, and and context. Huge wrestling fan as a kid. Loved it. Well, see, Obsessed. I think I, this is where I came Obsessed. to. Is I, I started to realize like so many of these people in grappling came from being pro wrestling uh, professional WWE fans as kids. Yeah, that's how I got into wrestling as a kid. I was like. Look at all these scantily clad girls. I have no confidence. Maybe if I wrestle, girls will like me. Jake, one time I went, I'd, I'd won the city wrestling tournament, which was a pretty big deal. And I walk up there. I'll never forget this till the day I die. There's, there's this girl I have a huge fucking crush on, dude. Huge. I walk up. I sit next to her. I just open up the metal case. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, look what I won. And she was like, Go fuck yourself. <laughs> she didn't care. <laughs> she didn't give a shit. So that's a bitch. That sucks, dude. Because you like your whole thing is like girls, dude. But you know what? I appreciated that moment so much because it made me realize like no one will ever value me for the things I own. Well, this is a, this is. I think this is an interesting lesson. It's funny. I ended up through the pro wrestling thing. That what you're saying about your metal. Um, I did the same thing. I started seeking out the best. So I saw how these Japanese guys were training. And I was like, oh my God, dude, they were actually really wrestling in practice. And then the show, it was predetermined, but everything else was wrestling up until the predetermined end. And I was like, this is like actually kind of cool because there's real fighting going on. This is fun, man. And so uh, at that same time, there was this guy came up named Sakuraba in, mm. in UFC. And he was basically like, it was mind-blowing what he accomplished. He mowed down every single Gracie Jiu-Jitsu guy that he faced. Now, at that time, that's like somebody being a flat earther. Like, people, what? Like, a pro wrestler is, like, just mowed down the entire Gracie family? Yeah. Like, it's just, people, it's just so much cognitive dissonance. Well, I was, like, in pro wrestling, in this Japanese dojo, not really into the buffoonish wrestling, but it was, I, I was getting money and getting some fame from it. And then this guy comes, I was just like, oh my God, what is this guy doing? This is the next epiphany, right? So it's me further sharpening the saw, right? I started out martial arts, then it turned to grappling, then it was pro wrestling, but now it's this form of pro wrestling that's competitive. Now I'm really figuring this out. I hook up with um, a couple huge mentors, um, 
Billy Robinson was probably the most impactful in my life. Very famous pro wrestler who was feared as a submission grappler. Okay. Um, but this was during like the seventies and eighties. He's the one he, he trained Ric Flair. He trained, um, all these guys and they all feared him because he just was like legit. He's the one who trained this Sakuraba guy. So I sought him out, ended up hooking it up and working out a situation where I could basically apprentice under him for seven years. It was like awesome. Totally changed my life. But he had a very similar thing. He said, you know what? I was winning all of these medals as an amateur wrestler. And I went to my coach. His coach was name was Billy Riley. He goes, I went to my coach and I showed him my medal. And he goes, all right, that's awesome. Now buy me a steak dinner. And Billy was like, uh, coach, I can't. He goes, that's why those medals are worthless. Wow. And that shifted his whole mindset about, fuck, I love this, but I need to make a living. I need and not just make a living, but become wealthy doing this. And Billy was able to. I mean, at one point he told me he was making like, this is in the 70s, he was making like $10,000 a week. Right? Wow. Like balling. That's like a hundred grand a week back Dude, then. Dude, he was balling. He was at the top, right? And he, he was actually in a movie with Ed Asner. Like, the, he was the kind of the rock before the rock. Yeah. Right? Like, like he was the main character with Ed Asner and this other guy named Vern Gagne um, in this movie called The Wrestler in the 70s. It's actually a great film. Um, anyway, anyway. So all this stuff, like, just kind of because of my obsession and my focus and this this desire to do bigger and do more and not be afraid to do stuff that hadn't been done before. It just all started like congealing and <laughs> becoming this thing that I do today yeah. with this company, scientific wrestling, which is, you know, where I spend most of my time and it's a wrestling business. Right. And, and this is a, what I want people to hear that I'm hearing and I don't know if people are making meaning of it, but a couple of things, one, the willingness for you to bet on yourself. Yeah. Two, getting good mentors, which you probably had to invest into a hundred dude and like ridiculous. And, yeah. and three, which I think we're stepping into right now is that people really underestimate the amount of time that it takes to create something. Dude. Like, so that single minded focus is super important because you will get distracted on other stuff. You're still going to have 24 hours in a day. But what are you going to do with that 24? Are you going to spend it on Netflix, Xbox, Pornhub, all this bullshit? Or are you going to spend all that time working on this thing that actually matters to you and, and can really radically change your life? But you have to be willing to be different. You have to be willing to stand out, right? What do they say? The tallest poppy is the one that always gets lopped off, right? In a field of poppies. Well, you got to take that risk. So... For me, I, as I've broken it down, it's like you got to have that get real, man in the mirror, rock bottom moment. You got to get obsessed or single-minded focus. Then you got to take a calculated risk, okay? Then you have to, what you're saying, fucking work your ass off, dude. Massive action is the big, the, the, ter the terminology and the personal, work your fucking ass off, like yeah, hard, for sure. okay? And this is, to me, this is also where I think wrestling is fantastic, as like, a, I think it's the greatest personal development program ever made. I agree. Because it's just you. I can't blame my soccer teammate. I can't blame my, my rugby teammate. I fuck up. It's on me. Dude, that is the exact reason why I wrestled. 
because I remember being my, my best friend who unfortunately got murdered. He and I joined the wrestling team together mm. and I just outshone him. Mm. I, I've got a little bit of athletic capacity as a kid. Yeah. You're big and strong. Yeah. And, 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 and I was in this place as a kid where I just did not trust people. Right. And so because of my lack of trust, I fucking hated team sports. I played baseball, I played football, and I would hate when these kids wouldn't work hard enough. It would drive me fucking crazy. It's it's the greatest way for a young person because it's individual. I think boxing might be a similar thing. Yeah, boxing's right there too, for sure. I mean, any individual martial arts I think is gonna put you there, right? Yo yo, maybe. I don't know. I've never yo yo. It's different too, because like I don't think it's the same as like track and field. No, it's Which not. is like me just running as fast as I can. Dude, when you have another person trying to kick trying your ass. Trying to destroy you. Like, it's a different level of the game, dude. Yeah, and, and I, I think the, the thing to take away from it more is because the vast majority of people have not wrestled, Jake. I think we both know this. Yeah, yeah. But, 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 I, but I do want to say that the thing I want people to hold on to in this is like life, whether or not you fucking like it, is an individual sport. What you do has nothing to do with me. As much as I wish I could blame Jake for how bad my life sucks, how much I can't get the thing I want, no matter what, it's like, go and take inventory of your fucking calendar. Go look at the way you spend your time, your money, your effort, your energy, right? And and look at the way that you present yourself into the world as the person that you are and have a willingness to look in that mirror, man, because that was the pivotal changing point for me too. And, and look, I don't want to be fucking preachy because people have heard this before, but it's like, listen to this show, pay attention to people's stories like, like yours, Jake, because we all have something in common. We all had to get the fuck out of our own way. 100%, dude. Like, but so here's the other angle to that, though, right? The thing that took me a while to learn as well. So I do think wrestling is probably, for me, is and grappling and martial arts, the greatest personal development tool that I ever really got involved with in the first place, right? So it, it's that... What this is what I call the five pillars of greatness. I don't know. I'm I'm listening to too much of this personal development shit, so I'm coming up with my own. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. So okay, so, tell me the five so, pillars. So you're speaking my language. So the first is like that get real, right? That rock bottom, that man in the mirror moment. The second is is um, getting obsessed. The third is taking calculated risks, right? Which I think hopefully we talked about all of these. Uh, the next one is that massive fucking action, and the thing that I was missing out the most that I have recently come to. And maybe it's as I approach 50 and my testosterone decreases or I don't know what the hell or because I got so many damn injuries, I can't really do what I used to do. But people, people is the fifth pillar and I had ignored it for a long time because I wanted to do everything myself because exactly what you said, people let me down all the time. Nobody worked as hard as me, didn't do it the way I did it to my standards and I did a lot of great stuff with those first four pillars. I did a lot of fucking cool stuff. Like I said, I started the mace, the whole fitness mace movement, which still blows my mind to this day. I'm like, I still have to be like, oh, that was me. Shit. I, I, dude, I saw some video on YouTube or it might have been TikTok or Reel, whatever these things are, the other day. And I meant to send it to you and I was like in passing and it was, it had like 500,000 views and it was, or maybe you posted it. It was a girl with a mace, just like doing this mace work. I was like, I know the guy who made that. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's ridiculous, right? Like I'm like, I still am like, wow. So I was having massive impact, but I mean, I want like really massive. I want legacy, dude. I want to die 
and have my like immortality. I don't want physical immortality. I want my shit to live on for like generations, right? Like that's what I want. That's crazy. Yeah, but your shit is impact. Yeah, dude. So, but that's going to take people. And that is that fifth pillar is you have to really learn to be a leader. And here's the irony. So going back on my story to when I was in college and I am, I ended up going to college. So when I got sick, I think I was a sophomore. It was between sophomore and junior year. I got sick and I just was like, fuck, I can't be physical right now. So I doubled down on academics and I did great. Okay. Because I didn't have anything else to do. Right. I ended up going to university of Colorado on a scholarship. First person in my family to go to college. First person to get a scholarship. Like, like awesome. Okay. I go on a leadership call. It's a super prestigious leadership scholarship. Right. Only like, I think it's like, 50 out of the 10,000 incoming freshmen get chosen to be in this program. And I'm in this leadership program and I'm a loser, dude. I'm like doing drugs. I'm like (laughs) picking the easy way out. And I get in this leadership and here my buddy, who's just this scrappy little skateboarding kid is getting mobilizing all these people to build skate parks and do all this stuff. Right. And that was the real lesson for me is if I want to have big impact, like Mm. rasher level impact, Right, Jake Phelps, the guy who ran it, who my friend took over from, like that guy blew that shit up. It's lived past his life, right? Like that's where I'm wanting to go with scientific wrestling and my all this crazy shit that I do. So I think I might have done that with the mace, but the mace was just kind of a side project. That was like luck in a way. Mm. I mean, I did it and I it was designed, but also it wasn't my intention. I was aim I was aiming over here and I hit over here, yeah. right? Like. So I'm like, okay, I need to do this with the wrestling thing. And that's going to take people. So that is where the leadership component comes in. And that's not something, I do think that you have, I've started now in the last probably five or six years really taking that serious. Like, how do I get people to actually get into what I'm doing? And how do I create a mutually, a positive sum game, what Grant Cardone calls the winner's exchange. Okay, that's awesome, but it's just a simple idea of win-win. Mm-hmm. How do I align people's interests with my interest, like with what I want to do? So that's really where I've gone in the business of this. To me, business is an ethical system. It's a moral system, right? Because I look at like human interaction. I can either, it's, I like your, your unbroken shirt, and I can either trick you or, and steal it from you somehow or coconut you on the head and take it. <laughs> Or I can give you 20 bucks, and if the shirt is worth less than the 20 bucks I have, you give it to me. Your shirt's worth more than the 20 bucks I have. And we're both a win-win. We're both happy for the exchange. That is where I've been spending the last five or six years almost entirely in business. So outside of the wrestling, the wrestling is like my obsession. The wrestling is what has educated me, what has um, fulfilled me, and is my life purpose. But... Just like I said, I'm aiming for that and I hit elsewhere. Like I've started all these other companies <laughs> and like I started the first reverse mortgage consultancy. I sold my shares out because I was like, well, I need to buy a house. So I'm going to just buy this house. I don't even want to do the work. But these guys, uh, that company now is like, a. I think they pull something like, uh, he was telling me it's like eight or $9 million a year, right? And that was totally just me having one of those moments. And I literally, this guy was my boss. And he kept bugging me every day. He was like, dude, I need market share numbers. And these are all privately held companies. I'm like, dude, unless you give me 
like a corporate espionage budget. I can't get you there. <laughs> These are not in 10Ks. I can't go fucking look this up. And I, he was just kept bugging me about it. And one day I was like, okay, we had a weekly Friday meeting. And on that, I remember this Friday, he, he, I came in and I go, I solved the problem. I got the problem solved. And he's like, what? I go, yeah. And he's like, whoa, okay, well, what do we got to do? Okay, I said, well, I need to quit. You need to quit. And we need to take this database guy with us. He's like, what, dude? <laughs> I'm like, no, just hear me out. What we're going to do is we're going to quit. And then we're going to get NDAs for everybody in the business to give us their data. And we're going to spit back reports with only their data as a slice of the pie and everybody else grayed out. But you know, company A has got this market share. Company B has got this. And you're here. And he was like, all right, let's go. That was 2006. That was the last day I worked, by the way, and, and for so, somebody else. So what everyone needs to know is that Jake actually destroyed the American economy. <laughs> dude, <laughs> dude. so I was working for IndyMac Bank as a quant. My title was Manager of Technical Oversight of Complex Instruments. What a fucking stupid title that is, right? Sure. Like, what bullshit is that? They hired me to basically overlook the portfolio and look at risks. And when I, and I was answering to C-level executives, right? Like chief revenue officer and shit. That's, we were in the analytics department. And I'm asking these questions like, because it was IndyMac. This was the first bank to get nationalized during the 2008 crisis, right? They, they were fucked. And I was like, guys, yeah, you know, in board meetings, I'm like, how are we going to, this is not sustainable. We're doing these liar loans, not, no doc loans, and giving a plumber a million dollar loan. Like, you can't cover that, dude. If there's a hiccup in the economy, you can't cover that. And what about the fact that the, the GSEs, like Freddie and Fannie, are actually bankrupt right now? Like, this is a whole problem. So I had people on my LinkedIn being like, dude, you were totally right. Like, like, I was some sort of profit or shit. Like, people that I worked with back then. But what that actually did is marginalize me. Because I was fucking with the C-level executives' KPIs, which are tied to their bonuses. They don't want that because they're only there for like three or four years. And then they get these like million dollar bonuses and then they're out. They go buy a house or something, right? But I'm like, guys, we can't do this. And I told, so I actually saw the writing on the wall. And that's why I left IndyMac and moved to their subsidiary, which was at the time the largest reverse mortgage originator named Financial Freedom. And that's where I started working and where I met this guy. And I was just like, dude, I'm just waiting for the fucking foot to drop or the other foot to drop. I'm like, this is not sustainable. Like, this is going to go in the shitter, dude. And, I mean, I don't know. I convinced them somehow. So yeah. we all left. You, you've lived a lot of different lives. It's, it's, I've packed a lot of life in. Yeah. You know, I, I think that I have too. You know, I, I look at my experience, and, and I want to pivot here, and I know we're running out of time, but, you know, you and I connected, and, and I want to go into this with a couple of minutes left because I think it's really, really important. For those not watching, um, you have a 10X hat on. And you and I connected because you held this 10X event. And as everyone knows, if you've listened to this show, Grant Cardone became a business investor in my company. I spoke on his stage, blah, blah, blah. And, and moving to, to Denver recently, I was like, man, I need to find community. To your point, the fifth pillar 100%. of this people and alignment. And I think I want to add to your people and add the word alignment because I think that's true. so yeah, important. Yeah, true. Because fucking people are everywhere. True. But but the honest 
like honestly to get them moving with you exactly you yeah. need to be the moving in the right crowd or leading the right crowd and like you know on we meet on from meetup.com and this is the same thing i tell people all the time like don't make excuses for not having a community because you have the fucking internet and so i was like okay cool i'm gonna hop on here now what's on meetup.com oh entrepreneur fucking party drink um, pool party, uh, go to the club, bowling, shit. Like I'm like, that's just, no, I, I'm not 25 anymore. I want to be around people <laughs> right. who are creating change in the world and in life. And then I was like, oh, wait, this guy, Jake, has this thing called the 10X Meetup. Perfect. My people, right? My community, because these are people who we have some sort of alignment and symbiosis. What role What role has being able to step into this ideation of, of 10X and this community and even Grant Cardone mean for you and your life and your future. Yeah, man. So again, I think you're right about that um, because you're right. Alignment is so important about it. And it's just trying to find, to get the other person to benefit from your thing. It's that winner's exchange, that positive something, right? That took me forever. So, you know, there was a period, like I mentioned, you know, my wife and I are having our 16th wedding anniversary tomorrow. We're also business partners, right? So she has a software company, and she calls me her lover and consultant. I love it, right? Because I've helped her. I don't know how the HR business. feels about that. Yeah, yeah. Like we're, we're totally f- HR hates us, man. Like I'm totally cop and feels all the time. It's oh like God. totally off, awful. But uh, family show. <laughs> so, so, um, uh, uh, you know, we we got married and started running this company, and you know, I'm gonna be honest. Like I think we got kind of complacent. We because we weren't hanging around with the right people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that sounds judgy, but it is judgy, dude, because I want something for my life and certain people are going to change it. If I hang out with a bunch of meth heads, man, I'm going to be living Breaking Bad. I'm not going to be living the life I want, right? Unless I want to live Breaking Bad, which, I mean, <laughs> you got a whole bunch of fucked up priorities if that's your your goal. But um, we had gotten a little complacent and, you know, we were kind of actually, this is before lockdowns and we got hammered by lockdowns. Um, but... We got complacent and we were kind of actually thinking of selling the company. And I'd never really sold. I'd sold out of a company I'd been in, but I'd never actually sold a company. So I started looking into like, how do we sell a company? I don't, you know, I've worked in investment banking, but never actually done this process. So I want to learn it. And um, it might've been the algorithm. I don't know. Cause Grant's like fucking got a genius marketing team. I'm looking, reading everything, listening on Audible, everything about how to exit a business. And this event comes up. It's called 10X, 10X Exit. Exit. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, honey, we got to go to this. We got to go to this because I need to learn from this guy. This guy, sold, Brandon Dawson, who runs Cardone Ventures, and that's Grant's partner in that company. Who's, who's arguably the smartest businessman I've ever met. Dude, so like, I was telling you, like, I the thing I learned from Tony Robbins early on was get the, the very fucking best people do whatever it takes to get in that room for wrestling. It wasn't money that did it for me in wrestling to, to have me team up with guys like Carl Gotch or Billy Robinson. People know it was effort and making things happen. That's what they wanted. But business guys want probably money. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway, I get with, I, we go to this thing with Dawson who's totally impressive. You got to just look him up, man. Like had a $2 million a year company sold it for 70 times earnings, you know, like 77 times earnings for $150 million. I mean, I was like, dude, I'm going to sit at the feet of this guy and figure this shit out. Well, we go to 10X Exit, and I had already been super impressed with Grant off of Undercover Billionaire, the thing he did in Pueblo. Uh, I was like, fuck, dude, that guy's, like, legit. And I'd already been reading him and stuff, but I hadn't really gotten pulled in. We went to that 10X Exit, and 
it was a real eye opener for me because I had been able to grow a company up to about $1.5 million, but I couldn't do beyond that. I didn't know. I'd never gone beyond that, but these guys had, and I was like, shit, that's, these are the people, man. And they're, yeah, it's expensive, but dude, it's better money than I spent even on my master's degree in financial engineering. That's $60,000. I've spent way more of grant. But that money, like, where's the financial engineering degree? Yeah, I mean, I got a couple high salary jobs out of it. But, like, the stuff that I was learning out of the 10X community and to be surrounded by like-minded people, fuck, dude. Totally. I mean, so, so I mean, I jump, I'm one of those people that can make a decision quickly. Uh, and I saw this. I was like, this is exactly what we need, where we need to be, the people we need to be around, and just, I mean, 100% commitment like all the chips in on this and so yeah it's radically changed our lives for the better um really helped our company you could talk to to sandra about probably some of the impact that it's had for her which i think has been massive with regard to a company but you know also kind of in terms of personal achievement and things like that it's a great group great group of people yeah yeah. And, and it's, again, it's that alignment issue, right? It's like, that is more important because, you know, the other day I was on, I've, I've shared this before, but I was on Facebook and an old friend had messaged me. Someone, I have not seen this dude in 15 years, but dude, you know what we used to do 15 years ago, party, drink, watch football all day long. And I'm just, you know, I had the back and forth though. I got no beef or anything and we're having mm-hmm. the back and forth. And I'm like, oh wait, you're literally still doing the same shit. Nothing is different. And and getting involved in communities of people who want growth, who want endeavor, right. who want success, it's everything. Jake, my friend, this conversation has been incredible. Um, before I ask you my last question, where can everybody find you? Uh, probably the easiest way is my passion. To, uh, anything scientific wrestling, you can go to scientificwrestling.com, Google it. Uh, you can... Facebook it, Instagram it, TikTok it, all of that. I mean, I, you know, I try to be everywhere, ubiquitous with it. Uh, scientific wrestling is probably the easiest way. And then just message me. Um, you know, if, if you are interested in some of the, the the coaching I offer, I've got my own kind of brand I'm kicking off. Uh, again, totally grant inspired. Also a little inspired by Think Unbroken as well. Uh, number one is kind of what I'm pushing, um, like NO1, because I'm really into this journey of bootstrap entrepreneurship, of mm. being a no one, no one, to number one, no one. Love it, right? So uh, you can find me at no, number one coaching, no one coaching dot com as well. So scientific wrestling is probably the easiest. Amazing. My last question for you, my friend: What does it mean to you to be unbroken? Okay, I had to look something up on the phone because. Um, I don't know if it's from the strokes I've had due to wrestling or maybe the drug use or <laughs> maybe just getting old. Things don't pop into my head as easy that, as they used to. But, you know, I've spent a, a, a little bit of time around Japanese culture. And there's this really interesting art form. It's called kitsugi. And it's this art form of taking like broken plates and vases and putting them back together and then sealing them with like this gold seal. And it's this actual like art. And it's kind of like a Japanese art of unbroken. And so I think that, you know, you only are unbroken if you decide to stay. Uh, you're only broken if you decide to stay broken. You could actually make a choice to unbreak that thing and put it together and actually make it into something more valuable, a work of art. 
like the Kitsugi idea. I think it's K-I-T-S-U-G-I. So to me, I think, and this is hard, I think, for people to hear, especially when you're in the midst of the muck and the shit, that being unbroken is a choice. And you just got to have that. For me, it's just constantly being disgusted with myself. Like, like that's how I get out of it. But, but it's a choice. I'm, I relate to that a lot. Jake, my friend, thank you so much for being here. Unbroken Nation, thank you so much for listening. Please like, subscribe, comment, share, tell a friend. And until next time, my friends, be unbroken. I'll see you. Hey, Unbroken Nation, we'll be right back to the show. But I wanted to let you know that you can grab a copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma, for free. If you go to book.thinkunbroken.com, you can download the PDF ebook version of the book and get everything that I know about the baseline of healing trauma for free downloaded to your email right now. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to download your copy of Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma for a PDF for your phone. Again, that is book.thinkunbroken.com. Thank you so much for listening to Think Unbroken. Please share this episode with someone who could use it and help us move forward in our mission of ending generational trauma in our lifetime. And if you would, please take five seconds to pop on iTunes or Spotify, hit that five star, leave a review. And you can also reach out to us on social at Michael Unbroken or at Think Unbroken. And of course, you can check out our YouTube channel at Think Unbroken. Thank you for being a part of Unbroken Nation, my friends. And until next time, be unbroken. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a wait list for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.